Welcome to Startup Growth Stories by ARC. Hear from founders of bootstrapped startups and decacorns. We discuss the successes and the failures and the things they learned along the way. In the final minutes, founders get vulnerable. They share how growing their business has impacted their lives. Join us every Thursday for a new startup growth story. And now, here's our host, Don Muir. I'm joined here with Jack Pierce, co-founder of Wayflyer, the experts in e-commerce that helps businesses worldwide reach their growth potential by providing financing and analytic solutions to improve cash flow, drive sales, and optimize supply chains. Thanks for coming on to the podcast with me, Jack. It's great to be here, Don. I'll just start off by saying congrats, obviously, on your big announcement this week. Pretty impressive getting it done in this environment. So yeah, big kudos to you. Yeah, thanks a ton. Couldn't have done it without uh, all of our great customers and, and investors and team members. So it's great to have you part of that story. Let's dive right in. Uh, first, we like to start off on our podcast with a simple question. Who is Jack Pierce? Wow. Talk about, uh, I hope you're not expecting a like deeply philosophical answer here. Profound. <laughs> yeah, I'm not much of the philosopher. So who is Jack Pierce? Well, I'm, I'm 31 years old, was born in New Zealand, Wellington, New Zealand, but grew up in Ireland. Parents are both Irish, very into sports, really like my sports, everything from rugby, soccer, golf, tennis, and really like people, I'd say, big people person versus, say, an analytical type person. A lot, based a lot of my decisions off instincts and that kind of thing. And yeah, that's probably me. And what is Wayflyer for those who aren't familiar? So Wayflyer is a financing platform for e-commerce businesses where we provide financing to solve working capital issues that pretty much every anyone who's selling product in the world faces. So today, if you decide that you want to start a business selling furniture online or anything at all you're probably getting your product made in china and manufacturers and factories don't give credit terms to customers and so what we do ultimately is step in there to provide the upfront capital so they can keep buying inventory as they grow and uh, take it back out of their sales as they get bigger that's kind of how we've started off in the financing world because we're solving one of the biggest problems i think for e-com founders but over time, we're trying to do more and more and go deeper into the supply chain, help them find manufacturers, help them design products, develop products, and ultimately get them to their customers. So selling money was a good start, an easier start. Let's dig into the entrepreneurial journey, which is the focus of this podcast. On another session, you shared that you were one of your first endeavors in the world of entrepreneurship was Christmas tree sales and recycling. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I think I've always liked doing like little bits and pieces myself on the side. When I was in school, I used to sell like iPhone accessories to all of the gas stations, you'd call it here in the States, petrol stations in Ireland. Just ordered them off Alibaba, brought them in from Korea and China and everywhere and, and used to sell them there. When I was in college, first year in college, I remember my friend, me and one of my good friends, Dave Dowdle, just decided one year. There was loads of Christmas trees. Initially, it started off, there was a load of Christmas trees lying outside people's houses. And I had this tiny little red Volkswagen Polo, like could barely fit four people <laughs> into it. And we decided that we would go around the houses in like the rich neighborhoods of Dublin 
and ask them if they wanted us to take their tree away and recycle it. They'd pay you like 20, 30 euros sometimes for it. I think that the best, the best part was as we went and picked up trees because we were using the polo, I just opened the boot, put down the back seats. We'd throw the tree in. You'd fit about a quarter of the tree in the back. The rest would be dragging along the ground. And as you'd look over to the house, there'd be a whole family gathered in the living room looking outside going, what are these two clonkers <laughs> doing? Uh, they don't even have a van. And so we did that one year just kind of for fun from maybe like December 28th through the, we went back to college. And then the next year we set up a business where we actually started delivering Christmas trees. We would recycle them afterwards. And we did that for just five years. My brother Two brothers of mine took it over after we kind of moved on and got real jobs, let's call it. And uh, I still get texts to my phone every year asking if we're still doing trees. So <laughs> it's, uh, that's always a bit of excitement. It sounds like quite the business and, and it's a great story. Do you think that you've always wanted to be an entrepreneur? I'm 31. So probably over the last 10 years, entrepreneurship and startups have become kind of dinner table talk, let's call it. They were kind of become known in the public uh, forum. And prior to that, I'm not sure I ever said, hey, I'm going to go start a tech company or, or be an entrepreneur. I've always been pretty ambitious and I'm a big, big risk taker. Like I love, love taking risks. And I think it's probably those traits more than anything that lead to entrepreneurship rather than necessarily knowing when you're 21, hey, I know exactly. I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do, but I knew for sure that I think those traits lead to it most of the time. What about yourself, Dom? Yeah. I mean, similar, similar answer, right? I, I come from an East Coast finance background. I've loved rolling up my sleeves and, and, and starting things from scratch. And I have a, a history of doing that throughout my academic and personal life prior to, to starting this company. But I followed a more traditional path in consulting and in private equity, uh, passionate about about finance, and finally saw an opportunity to combine those those competing interests and start Arc, combining my passion for finance with with a long a long held desire to to start something myself. Love it. On that note, I'd actually love to to hear the founding story of Wayflyer. I mean, what was the idea behind Wayflyer, and where did you and your co founder meet? Myself and Aiden are both from Ireland. I, I grew up in Dublin, and Aiden grew up down in Cork. But it was actually in my previous job before Wayflyer that the kind of idea came about. So I was working between San Fran and China for a company called PCH. And PCH was started by this Irish entrepreneur called Liam Casey, really successful business. They would have developed and manufactured all of Fitbit's products and GoPro products and a lot of like Philip Morris's electric cigarettes. They did a lot of secondary Apple products for a long, long time. And it was during that time that I probably got my first real insight into tech entrepreneurship, spent a lot of time in San Fran, started seeing what people were doing from all over the world, and I'd say got hooked. And at the time, we, were, we raised some money through a fund, and we were investing in different businesses. We had an accelerator in PCH where people would come in with ideas and we would spend four months developing prototypes and getting them ready to pitch ultimately. And when we would work with businesses, if they were raising five million, a lot of the time, three million of it was just going purely into inventory. And what we used to do 
was we would go to their factory in China that they were using. And because PCH had a really good name, we would negotiate with the, that factory. So we'd be able to get our the companies we invest in like 90 days, a lot of the time credit terms. And that just changed the working capital cycle entirely where now they're selling before ultimately they need to, to pay for their goods. And, and now we could give them less money. We'd get in a lower valuation, but we would bring that benefit of credit ultimately to them. And that was super. But when you're, you know, you can only invest in, there was two of us, you can only invest in a certain number of companies a year. You can only negotiate with a certain number of factories. And it was, it was really that idea of how do we expand this out and do this forever? Because everyone has that same issue. And at the time I met Aiden and Aiden had his second business. He's very much an engineer background, data analytics background. His first company used to do data analytics training for a lot of the big consulting firms like BCG, Ernst & Young, teaching them how to use Excel and Tableau and all these business intelligence tools. And he started that, he sold that, he set up Conjura. Conjura does marketing analytics for online businesses. And it was really from initially talking to him about an investment where I saw how much data they were gathering on these businesses and how well they understood these online e-com businesses that I had the idea of, hey, why don't we take this analytics tool and, and the deep understanding of what's good and what's bad. And instead of using it to give advice on marketing, let's use it to make assessments from an underwriting standpoint to decide who we give money to. And yeah, that was really where it started. So we met Christmas 2018, January 2019, spent a few months kind of floating the idea, thinking about it and ticked off raising money in maybe the summer, June 2019 and started the company in September. So um, it's been a bit of a whirlwind since then. Love it. And and within that that story, what was was there one identifiable aha moment where you said, this is going to work. We can take this concept and scale it into a you know a venture backable business. I think when we started we knew we had something because I'd been working in the world for a while. So we knew that this was a problem ultimately to solve. And um, we didn't really have that aha moment. And, and by the way, I always thought it was going to work. Maybe that's just the nature of entrepreneurs and being incredibly optimistic at all times. Very necessary <laughs> trait. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. But right. we started giving out money in March 2020. So we spent about six months, seven months building out the platform, started giving out money in March 2020 right into the pandemic but it was probably may like we gave out like six hundred thousand. then it jumped the next month we did two million next month we did six million it was probably around may where we just went oh shit this thing can get big quick it was just me ultimately outbounding people and talking to them and getting them on and it was so easy to sign up customers like selling money is a great thing to sell so it is <laughs> and so that was probably when we first went, wow, this, this can really get big quick. What was it like selling to your first, closing your first deal, your first customer? Do you remember, do you remember that initial interaction? And did they know that they were the first customer? How, can, you, can you walk me through that? They definitely did not know they were our first customer. <laughs> I, I definitely was telling them we were working with hundreds of customers. Yeah, you know, yeah. We've been doing this for a long time. No, it was, you know, our first proper customer was, a business called Amber Eyewear. It's spelled A-M-B-R. And 
this guy Dan Nugent, who's Irish, had set it up. And it was Christmas 2019, so it started in September, and he had set up a pop-up store for Christmas in Dublin. And I literally had seen online that he'd set up a pop-up store. I bought some of his blue light glasses, and I walked over to a store, like walked in there. Dan was there, started talking to him, asked him if he wanted money for inventory. And I went back to that store every day for like four days in a row because he thought I was completely making it up. He was like, this guy <laughs> is a complete con artist. Why does he want to give me money? I don't even know who he is. Um, and that was our first. We gave him 10 grand, I remember. He paid it back really quickly. We ended up giving him subsequent advance after advance after advance. Uh, he was our first customer video after that. And he actually now works with me on all of our new bets and our new products. He still runs Amber Eyewear with his fiance and yeah we we work together day in day out so it's really cool that's incredible that's a really great story so there's you there's Aiden. it sounds like there's some other early folks involved who was the initial tribe that supported you in your journey to get wayflyer off the ground yeah geez and by tribe are you talking about from the investment standpoint do you mean the early employees or a bit about i mean more for you for you personally at least here at arc there's a couple of folks whether it's the gp of of our our seed investor or you know your employee number one or maybe a, a significant other in your personal life but from conversations with other founders we found that there's typically a couple of folks who are really meaningful outside of even the the co-founder team yeah of course of course i think when we started we took across probably six or seven people from Conjure, and a lot of them are are those people for me like jamie can joe ballard jerry fitzpatrick they're all heads of departments now dan o'brien who joined as our head of sales has just been a rock star and um, i think outside of that my old boss liam casey was one of our first investors i think the fact that he was investing gave us credibility initially which was really helpful to be able to go to other people who knew him, respected him, and knew that he had done well in investing over the years. And, and kind of that was like a stamp of approval. So that was pretty important for us. One of the family offices who invested in equity at the start, Stephen Grant is his name. He ended up giving us a bunch of debt as well before we could go and get debt from credit funds. And, and that was super helpful because it really allowed us to, to show that we knew what we were doing. You know, there's so many people that you rely on to get here that I, I couldn't possibly name them all. I think I think also from a personal standpoint, like my dad, my dad, I pretty much call my dad every day still to this day, ask him for advice, how to do X, Y, Z, whatever it is, even just to shoot the shit, really, really important. And he's got to work in, he, he kind of has a sports psychology background with a little bit of business psychology. He's worked with some cool businesses over the years, but I use him a lot. That's really great to have someone like that uh, in your personal life that, that you can turn to and, and to be a thought partner. And it's a, it's, a good, it's a good segue around the investment side. Fast forward to today, you and Aiden have collectively raised over $250 million of equity, over a billion dollars in debt. You've become Ireland's sixth unicorn. You've added 400 plus teammates and have surpassed a billion dollars in total deployment. First off, congrats. Thank it's incredible you. to see such amazing traction over the past 12 months. And in particular, talk to us about the experience of trying to plan for all that growth while 
simultaneously planning your capital market strategy and actually raising that capital. Can you talk about about that experience? Yeah, I can try to anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we ever planned that far ahead. I don't know about you, Don, but like trying for me, trying to think more than you can strategize a little bit about what you want to be in the long term. But really, I'm only ever planning six months ahead. A, a real pet peeve of mine back in the day when we were raising money and you're going to venture funds and stuff like that, you know, they're asking you to do, can you do a three year model? You're going, man, I don't know what we're going to do for the next three months. Never mind three years. Like, if you want me to just make something up and put some massive numbers in here so you get excited, like, I can do that. But it's probably a waste of my time and yours. And if you want to talk through the assumptions, like, we all know we're all just making this up pretty much. Look at the unit economics, sure, but most of it is is finger in the air stuff. So, no, I think, I think uh, what happens is you're constantly thinking ahead three, six months. You're constantly kind of making your, you can't really do anything about the next three months. You're kind of planning for month four to six. You are just trying to hit that and your expectations grow as you reach different milestones and your expectations change. And, you know, every time you reach one level, you want to go another step further and you reach another level and you go another step further. And, you know, many people ask, geez, do you ever stop and think about it? And you just don't, you know, you're on the, kind of consistent pattern your ambitions and expectations change i think from a like capital markets perspective we have been lucky not lucky but i'd say it was it was we did it on purpose so when we started the business we really focused on underwriting and our thought process was so long as we can perform really strongly from an underwriting perspective we're going to be able to go to banks early and get capital from them and the name of the game in, in lending ultimately is get as cheap cost of capital as you possibly can, as fast as you can. And that underwriting it creates this like flywheel effect where if you perform well, you get cheap debt. If you get cheap debt, you can provide cheaper co- f- pricing to your customers. If you provide cheaper pricing, you're going to get a lot more customers. The more customers you get, the more money the banks want to give you and the cheaper it gets again. And the only thing that messes that up is kind of defaults, let's call it, um, or poor perform- performance from an underwriting perspective. So capital markets became really easy for us because our performance was so strong. And we had everyone kind of wanted to work with us from that because we had very, very few defaults. And we did that on purpose. It's lucky it worked out as well as it did, but making our life easy was kind of at the core of it, let's say. And for the listeners on the podcast who are spinning up their own fintech platform, might be considering a, a warehouse line of credit or some other structured credit facility, could you just share some, shed some light on how you would approach a credit raise and how that might differ from an equity raise? Maybe the investors are looking for something different. I think a lot different to equity raises. When you're raising equity, you know, you're really selling a dream and you're selling the future and all of the different products that you want to build, how you're going to help solve all of these different problems that your customers have. With debt and credit, it's it's very, very different. They will literally talk to you and they don't like wasting time. They don't like big stories. They just come to you and go, send me your data tape, send me your historical performance. We'll have a look and then we can talk or not talk. And uh, the efficiency, I went to my first ever 
securitization conference in Vegas like two months ago. I always think for anyone listening, like think of the big short. You know that conference from the big short? That's what I was at Vegas. And I've never I didn't work in credit at all before this. So I'd never seen anything like it. But it was unbelievable. The bank set up 30 minute meetings. You do one after the other, 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. It's like speed dating. It's the most efficient thing of all time. And people come in and they go, what do you need? And you tell them what you need and they go, tell you whether they can give it to you or not. You send them the data tape and it moves on that way. But like anything, when you're raising money, having the introductions to the right people is super, super important. But after that just comes down to like cold hard numbers, I'd say rather than anything else. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Thanks for that. Moving away from fundraising a bit, a lot of the the listeners on this podcast are first-time founders starting their first company, trying to raise seed capital. What advice would you either give yourself if you could go back a couple of years before taking on this this entrepreneurial journey, or more broadly, what advice would you give to to first-time founders who are listening in today? Probably two things. One, like a personal thing, I, I always encourage people to start with some co-founders if it's your first time. It's a pretty tough journey, and having some other people there along with you, I think is super important. Maybe that's not for everyone, but I think it'd be very, very difficult if if I didn't have Aiden and to be honest, a bunch of the other founding team there. So that's one thing I'd say. And then the other thing that I see all the time is we do it a lot internally. I run a division called New Bets at the moment in Wayflower where we spin up new products. And what I always say to people is before you start going off and building stuff, like please go sell it, like ring customers, try and sell it to them. You'll figure out manually how to deliver something to them so they're happy. But it gives you a really good sense of what customers actually want. I think in the world of startups, the term pivot is the most overused word in the entire ecosystem. And it's because people never actually test out, do customers actually want this or not? So you start, you build something, you start selling it, realize no one wants it, and you pivot to what they really do. So I think uh, doing that's really important. How we do it today is I literally get 5,000 emails that you can go on Upwork ask someone to find you 5,000 emails, potential customer emails, that get HubSpot, get a CRM system, send out a lot of emails to them, see what the open rate's like, see what the response rate is like. People respond to you, then it's probably something worth building. If people don't, go back to drawing board and think again, you know? Building is difficult enough without having a product that no one wants. Yeah, that's uh, incredibly valuable advice. Thanks for sharing. The last segment here on the podcast, we like to get a little bit vulnerable with our guests. And you actually teed up the the segue perfectly when you mentioned, you know, having a co-founder and, and someone else to to lean on uh, when when the going gets tough. Some of the other founders you've interviewed have mentioned that building's hard and you have to keep your your health, both physical and mental, in check. I just wanted to double click on that a little bit. What impact has your entrepreneurial journey had on your personal life? For the better or or worse insightful question let's call it or a deep question but i like it um i suppose i'm i'm 31 years old i'm very much single by choice let's call it and i don't think i could have it any other way and it takes up a lot of your time so it does so i think when you're a founder and you're growing a business you could be your life and your personal brand and 
personal self-worth gets so tied up in that business that takes all your time definitely takes away from seeing friends as much relationships something you really need to work on a lot harder i'd say not something i'm amazing at to be perfectly honest with you because managing time is not one of my strong points but that's why having co-founders and having a like super friendly founding team is is so important i think that journey from when you're at like 20 people to 100 120 people like those people are friends for life and that's nice but yeah you just gotta be conscious of your time terrible taking holidays <laughs> if there was one thing i'd get better at it's taking a break and going away and trying to but yeah it definitely does take its toll so you kind of got to be ready for it the ups and downs is like having bipolar it feels like half the time yeah absolutely and and definitely everything you said resonates with me personally looking back on your journey over the past few years do you think there's anything you'd change no there's not if we could have moved into developing additional products earlier than we did, I think everyone always will say that same thing. We would have done that. But outside of that, we've been very lucky. Everything's gone pretty smoothly to date. You know, with the way the world is at the moment, it's probably the first time where there's kind of difficulties in general facing all businesses in tech space. So yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. And it sounds like a, a, a natural segue last question that we'd, we'd like to end on here looks like there's been lots of peaks maybe some some soft spots as well reflecting back i mean would you do it all over again if you had the opportunity yes and i i probably will done we'll see how long we keep doing wayflower for but it's a little bit addictive and uh i'd say i'll keep doing this for a long long time amazing i love it well look we'll leave it there Jack Pierce, thank you very much for taking the time. We really, uh, really got some insights here and, uh, and excited to, uh, to share this with the world. And, and uh, you can help other founders grow uh, on their own entrepreneurial journey, both personally and professionally. So thanks for sharing your story with us, Jack. Not at all. Don, thanks for having me on. Big congrats again and uh, good luck with everything. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Startup Growth Stories. To continue the discussion, head over to arc.tech.